My name is Mike Sayers, and it's uh, good to be here with you again. And I'll be your tour guide through the scriptures today. Okay, there we go. So we're talking about masters and slaves. Because, oh, you can leave it on. That's fine. Yeah. We're talking about masters and slaves because you all own some, right? Or you are one. Highly applicable sermon. There's a story about Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know if it's true. It might be. But it's a good story, nonetheless. So Professor Hendricks did a lot of traveling, very much like our own Professor Blomberg. And uh, American Airlines made him some kind of inspector, a person who'd write critiques about his flights, give reports to the managers. Hold on. And so he told a story about one flight where the stewardess did a great job, a wonderful job. There was rough weather. There were crying babies. There were drunk businessmen. But nothing stopped this woman from smiling everybody and serving everybody politely on the plane. At the end of the flight, Professor Hendricks stopped to talk to her, and she replied, well, Mr. Hendricks, you see, I did all that because I don't work for American Airlines. Seeing that he was a bit puzzled, she continued, I'm a Christian and I work for Jesus Christ. So the verses that we're talking about today can definitely be applied to your every day, day in, day out, work world. So feel free to apply these verses that we're going to go over today to your job. I think you can do that all by yourself. You don't need me. But I want you to know that they're plainly about the relationship between slaves and masters in the first century A.D. That's when St. Paul was writing. Last week, uh, if you weren't here, Jesse Heilman did a fine job of preaching this passage And making it personal, making it applicable to each one of us in terms of our attitude. Basically, he said, we can all be like Gary, the guy that they just could not reach. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to listen to the sermon from last week. So today we're going to talk about slavery. When addressing slaves in Ephesians 6... Paul tells them to obey their masters. There's no hint of a suggestion that slavery is wrong in this passage. Does that mean that uh, Paul approved of slavery? Does the Bible teach that slavery is morally acceptable? 
These are great questions. So let's read the passage again for ourselves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he or she does, whether he or she is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both master, their master, and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, this passage has troubled some of the most brilliant Christian minds over the millennia. I want you to listen to a quote from John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, from around 400 A.D. Just listen to this. What are you saying, blessed Paul? Here is one, the Apostle Paul, who has become the brother of servants, living himself the servant life as they live. He is their brother, facing the same limitations, contributing to the same body. His servanthood is understood in relation to the Son of God. He is not his own master. He has entered into the life of serving the Son. Out of this assumption, he calls them to be obedient to earthly masters with fear and trembling. Why? Archbishop of Constantinople, 400 A.D., troubled by this passage. So what we're going to do today is is we're going to take like a historical, cultural look at this whole thing. So it's going to be more like uh, a teaching than a preaching, more like a history lesson than a sermon. So let's take a look at slavery in ancient times. In the earliest known records that we have in history, slavery is treated like an already established institution. Next slide. In the uh, Code of Hammurabi, about uh, 1760 B.C., for example, it prescribed death for anyone who helped a slave escape or who sheltered a fugitive. Now, we know from the Bible that all the Jews were kept as slaves in Egypt under the Pharaoh before the great exodus that was led by Moses. People became slaves in one of three ways in the ancient world. Either they were captured in some kind of conflict or some kind of war. Perhaps they sold themselves into slavery because they didn't have enough to eat. They were in terrible debt or they sold their children. just to survive. Or they were born into slavery. Those are the three ways you got into it. Life for a slave could be very, very harsh. But here's the deal. If we look at slavery through a biblical lens, we see how from 
the very beginning in the Old Testament, God began to uplift the status and the treatment of slaves. And so if you did the whole Bible as a graph, you would see slaves start out way down at the bottom over here. And then slowly but surely, as time goes on over the course of the centuries and millennia, it gets up to where, in the end, the Apostle Paul is saying, there's no difference between slave person or free person, between master or servant. All right? That is the scope. You've got to know that the big abolitionist movements in the history of mankind were begun and maintained by Christians who had read the Bible and saw that sweep of history whether it was in early Rome or whether it was in Imperial England under William Wilberforce or even our own abolitionists here in the USA. You should be proud to be a Christian when it comes to the issue of masters and slaves. In stark contrast to the pagan world, I want you to listen. Now, this is Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy. Okay? Listen to this instruction about slaves from the Old Testament. Next one. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. This is the law of God to the children of Israel under Moses. In stark contrast to the pagan world under Hammurabi's cold. The Old Testament carefully regulates the institution of both kinds of slavery. You go, what do you mean both kinds of slavery? I mean, there was temporary slavery and then there was permanent slavery. A Hebrew slave enjoyed a special status. Any Hebrew slave was supposed to be released after six years of servitude. Unless, at that time, he or she chose to stay with the master. In which case, they could make their confession known. They would stand up next to the doorway and uh, get a piercing, basically. They would take an awl, and they would put it up against the earlobe, and they would pound a nail through the earlobe into the jam of the door. And then you'd wear a ring in that earlobe, forever signifying that you had become a slave by choice to a master that you considered wonderful. So, you could do that. But, they were to be released Especially during the year of Jubilee, which was the uh, 49th year. Hebrew slaves in a family were to be released from any obligation they might have to the owner. 
Next slide. As members of a Hebrew household, even foreign slaves were considered part of the family. They were able to share in Israel's worship, Israel's holidays. All right, get this. You have slaves. You're an Israelite. You have Hittite slaves, Amorite slaves, Jebusite slaves. They celebrated every holiday with you. And they got every Sabbath day off because they also kept the Sabbath day holy. They got a day a week off. Even though they were considered property under the law, they were given this significant protection by the Lord. And here's the deal. Another Old Testament law If a master's beating so much as caused the slave to lose a tooth, the slave was to be set free. So, if you're in this Judeo-Christian heritage, you've got to love the perspective that God has placed in His people concerning this institution of slavery. Slavery in Israel was a kind of a household thing. They didn't have plantations where there were hundreds and hundreds of slaves. It was more like you had a slave and he or she was part of the family. Actually, it was much less expensive to hire day labor than it was to keep a slave. And so you treated your slave well because it made financial sense. Thus, the few slaves who might be owned by well-to-do Hebrews were likely to be treated as trusted friends rather than as beasts of burdens or as enemies. There were times when foreign slaves were owned by the king. Some of them served in the temple. Nehemiah 7 mentions that there are almost 400 hereditary temple slaves who worked at the temple of Solomon. Solomon also had slaves that he put to work in his copper mines. I imagine that wasn't quite as good of a job. But they did get a day a week off. They were taken care of. And they did get the holidays. And they were expected to be part of the congregation worshiping the Lord. Let's go to the next slide. Slavery in New Testament times. Whoops. Little graphic design there for your pleasure. Just horrendous, isn't it, though, when you think about slavery? Okay, next. Scholars are reluctant to estimate, um, but uh, in the Greco Roman world, slavery was so much a part of life that uh, hardly anybody thought about it being illegitimate. It was considered a practical economic necessity. It was a normal part of life, as normal as having parents or having children. And scholars are kind of reluctant to estimate about the numbers, but as many as one-third of the people in the Roman Empire may have been slaves. One-third. One of every three people. I read some estimates that said it could be as high as one in every two. There was no middle class back then, folks. And slaves didn't just do menial work. They did all the work. 
They did all the professions. Many slaves were better educated than their owners. When the Romans took Greek slaves, they found the most intelligent and well-learned Greeks they could to go back and homeschool their children. True fact. It's where the word pedagogue comes from. It was a slave who was brought into the household to be a teacher to the children. There were laws that prevented the gross abuse of slaves in the ancient world in New Testament times, but owners did have free reign to treat slaves as, as they wished. Some were loved in the pagan world and treated like family, and some were treated horribly. If an owner wanted to torture or kill one of his slaves, he could do it with no legal repercussions. The main limitation, of course, of physical abuse was that you would be hurting your own investment. They couldn't work as well if they were limping or if they couldn't use their hand. Slaves were the machines of their day. And they weren't persons in the legal sense. You might be able to buy your own freedom if you could muster up enough money. A life of slavery might end in one of several ways. You might be freed by your master. That was possible. You might die. Or you might be purchased by somebody else. Now let's go and take a look at that passage a little more closely. Next slide. No, There you go. Actually, you could have gone forward. I think I had it twice, just so you know. Um, all right. Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Obey your earthly masters. Well, that's, that's what it means, obey your earthly masters. But what the actual Greek word there is, your masters according to the flesh. Katasarka. Your earthly masters, your, your masters according to a flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, your master has no say over your soul, over your spirit. Not at all. Just in the body. Just according to this flesh. This rotting piece of meat that you call home. That's the only thing your master really has. Your mind, your heart, your soul, your emotions, your thoughts, they all belong to the Lord. He's your master. Respect and fear is kind of a idiom. It doesn't mean, you know, trembling in a corner with your hands up worrying about being beat. It doesn't mean that. It just basically means you've got a keen sense of your own shortcomings as a slave and um, you don't want to make a mistake. It just basically, you want to do a good job. You don't want to screw up. And with sincerity of heart, the Greek word there is also a little bit different than sincerity. It means singleness. Singleness. Of heart. It's the opposite of duplicity. It means that what you say is what you mean. What you do is who you are. That you're not trying to cover up. 
and put on some kind of show for your master just to look good. The Christian slave has one goal before him or her. He or she is determined to obey the master as an expression of their commitment to the Lord. That's all. And this is a deferential relationship. Like I said, it's not about quaking in fear. Verse 6, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Masters often complain. I know this is hard to believe. But masters masters often complain that their slaves were lazy, especially when nobody was looking. I can't think of any manager who would say something like that. I kid, I kid. Paul encourages hard work among slaves, gives them a new hope and a new motive. And just so you know, um, in verse 9, he's going to address slaves, the masters of slaves, and nobody ever did it back then except for Paul. So don't give them my service. Don't just... Work hard when they're looking at you. Don't be a people pleaser. Is kind of what the Greek is saying. Don't be a people pleaser. Be a God pleaser. Is what Paul means. Because, you know, Christ himself took the form of a slave. And did the menial task of washing his disciples' feet, for example. We become servants. We become slaves of the one who served his disciples. Verse 8. Because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. That's all future tense, right? It doesn't happen now. It happens in the future. There's a judgment that's coming, is what Paul is writing about. And it hasn't happened yet. And the Lord is going to reward you. You don't have to worry about it if you're a slave. God's going to take care of the slaves. That's the promise. God himself will reward those slaves in the first century and every other century for what they do because... He counts it as service unto himself. He can do that because he's God. You might get a rotten deal in this life, is what the Apostle Paul was saying, but God will not let it stay that way. He has accounts. He has books that he's going to balance. You may not have a hope in the world of ever getting out of slavery But God is watching. And this life will seem like a blip on your radar screen when it comes to an eternity of being rewarded for the good that you did while you were a slave. Verse 9 is interesting. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. 
I don't think the church included a lot of people of high social rank who had slaves, but there must have been some, or Paul wouldn't address them in this letter that's going to circle all around Ephesus and other cities. This passage is an indictment of modern American churches where everybody is pretty much the same. Just saying. It's an indictment. If you go to church and every car in the parking lot is brand spanking new, Audis and Mercedes and BMWs, Lexuses, and all the people are bright and shiny, then something is wrong. Because Paul is assuming there ought to be some disparity in the social status in your church. (laughs) You know, when Scum started out, we were a pretty motley crew. We used to call ourselves the church with the left out and the right brain. And it was traumatic. When somebody came to church who wasn't one of us. Is that guy going to stay? He dresses in eyes-eyed shirts and docker trousers. I don't think that's going to work here. He's way too old. Of course, there was always me. But I'm telling you that if scum were to stay, it's not what God wants for his church. As long as a church is just a group of our kind... It fails in its ultimate purpose in that there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Colossians chapter 3. I mean, it's good that our mission is to people in the margins. It's really great. It's really great that our, our mission is to people who are outside the perimeter of the kingdom of God. That nobody wants. That most of the church doesn't want. That's, that's great. That's our mission. But the church is for everybody. To apply this text to your church requires a place where people come together as equals. So, you know. That's why I've always loved it when Leah Everson would wear pink at a staff meeting. Everybody else is in black, and Leah's wearing a pink top. I'm just being honest here. That's why I'm glad that Larry and Cheryl are here. 
why Fran and Craig are here, because they're old enough to be your dad or your mom, Mike Murphy, or Grandpa. If we went back to Ephesians 5, the chapter before this one, and read verse 15, this is what we would read. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time, because these days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk on wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Remember that none of this is possible without the filling of the Spirit. Remember that. The world can't do this. What we're doing here. Can't do it. But we can. Because the grace of God is here in our lives. And it will be a sign to the people on the outside. That God is with us. That His love is in us. That we don't play favorites. And that they can come and they can have what we have. They can come and they can bow their knees to Jesus. And they can be His Slaves, the same way that we have become his slaves. Paul was able to make these kind of statements because his points were based on his convictions that slaves, their owners, the apostles, and everybody were all slaves of Christ together. Paul referred to himself frequently as a slave of Christ, the kind who gets. His ear pierced with an awe and has committed the rest of his life to serving Jesus Christ because he loves his master and never wants to be separated from him. And it should be no surprise that Christ himself took the form of a slave. So Christianity was not subversive in that it stirred up a rebellion in the Roman Empire that slaves would rise up and throw off their shackles and get rid of their masters. Where do you think Martin Luther King got the idea? It was in the pages of Scripture. Changing hearts came first. Becoming equal status in Christ came first. Becoming a slave of Christ, along with every other profession, came first. Paul's strategy was that of producing an expression of the kingdom of God that would eventually change society. So, the church never adopted a rule that converts had to give up their slaves. The church never adopted a rule that new converts had to give up their slaves. Christians were not under the law, but under grace. And if you read the literature of the first and second centuries, and later, of many masters, you'll find out that upon their conversion to Christ it became more and more difficult for them to call a person a slave during the week and treat them like a brother or a sister in the church on the Lord's Day. Sooner or later, the implications 
of the kingdom they experienced began to seep in to their everyday lives during the week. Paul did in the end create a revolution. Not from without, but from inside. Did Paul believe in slavery? Yes, he did. He believed that all Christians are equally slaves of Jesus Christ. And that this is the one social relationship that has permanent and even eternal value. All right, so I'm going to kind of go outside of Ephesians right now into the broader context of Scripture. Next slide, please. Slave owners may have been pleased with the service they would get from their Christian slaves, but in the process, they lost control because slaves now had a higher allegiance than to their owners. Look at this verse from 1 Corinthians 7. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. If you can gain your freedom, do so. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to the people in the congregations who are slaves. For the one who was a slave when God called faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. In other words, don't sell yourself into slavery either. Don't tell me the Apostle Paul was all for slaves. Do a search on the internet, the Apostle Paul and slavery. You'll see this misinformation all over the place. Just looking at the Ephesians verse, for example. You know, and the owners had to deal with the words of Jesus himself, I think, which is crazy. Where Jesus says in Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. That's tough. That's really tough. Let's go on to the next slide. And then there's the whole letter of Philemon. The whole letter of Philemon. It's a very practical application of uh, this epistle, of uh, this idea in the epistle to Philemon. Now, just so you know, Philemon was a, uh, a master who had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from Philemon, and according to the law of his day, his master could have had him put to death in the pagan world. However, Onesimus ran into Paul and, <laughs> and became a Christian. He trusted Christ. So Paul sent him back to his master with this letter. So picture, 
the slave who was once a pagan and is now a Christian is going back to his Christian master who could have been put to death by the laws of Rome with a letter from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul said this. He says, perhaps the reason that he was separated you from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Onesimus is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And both master and slave are believers. They are siblings, right, in Christ. This letter is so powerful in the New Testament that there were slave owners in the South who did not allow their slaves to know about it. You could know about the rest of it, but you couldn't know about this part. Paul was required by Roman law to send Onesimus back to Philemon. I mean, as a Jew, he was also under Deuteronomy. And so he was kind of between a rock and a hard place. What am I going to do? So, what Paul does is, he writes a letter of recommendation, basically. <laughs> a letter of recommendation. Going back to the slave owner. And this, folks, is why Christianity is subversive to the culture. Always has been, always will be. Paul was making a slave owner treat his slave as a brother. Read the book sometime. It's quite amazing. Next slide, please. In the first century, Christianity was already viewed as subversive in thought. Because, number one, it rejected the traditional gods, which kind of made it seem like a treasonous religion to the Romans. Because that was uh, their form of patriotism, was to uh, Jupiter and Hera and Mars and Venus and Mercury and those guys. It rejected a lot of the normal forms of recreation like drinking, uh, prostitution, and stuff. So that made Christians weird. From the pagan viewpoint, um, Christians would form themselves into these kind of weird secret societies where they would eat blood and flesh at their meetings. That sounded weird. And then that that society was rumored that among Christians that slave and master would sit together at the same table and eat together. In other words, first century decorum was not observed in the Christian community. They somehow did not allow differences in social status. Every member had a spiritual gift, they would say. No matter what your social status any person, slave or free, can become an elder. And 
Every member of the church is called to the same obedience to Christ. Male or female. Doesn't matter. So, what are you going to do? John Chrysostom, Archbishop of Constantinople. What are you going to do? Next slide. This is what he said. God's law does not recognize these social distinctions. If anyone should ask where slavery comes from and why it has stolen into human life, for I know that many are keen to ask such things and desire to learn, I shall tell you. It is greed that brought about slavery. It is the desire to acquire, which is insatiable. This is not the original human condition. This horrid thing was begotten by sin. Over the centuries, Christians have come to the same conclusion. Over and over again. Here's the amazing news. That Jesus made himself a slave to sin as he was nailed on the cross in order to free us from its grasp. Jesus took our place on the auction block of the cosmos and offered himself in our place that he would become a slave and die and we would become free and live for eternity. We celebrate communion weekly here at SCUM. When we do, we proclaim that Jesus died, that our slavery to sin, to the sin nature, to the worst parts of us is over. That He shed His blood and gave up His body so that we could be free, not just in this life, while in these rotting bodies, but forevermore in bodies that are meant to be incorrupted. Beautiful forever. Finally, we'll have bodies that match our souls. Jesus did that for us by becoming a slave to sin. Let's remember that when we take communion today. Now, while we're taking communion, um, if you have a prayer need, you can go back in that little brown room where Larry will be and some others. And you can bring a situation. Maybe there's a situation where you feel like you're a slave. Maybe there's a person who's acting like he or she is your master. You need to sort that out before the Lord. Go back there during the communion and have it prayed for. It's come when we take communion, we uh, rip off some of the bread. And we dip it into the cup. Or if you are gluten intolerant, there's some 
gluten-free crackers in there. You can take one of those and dip it as well. Let's celebrate our freedom in Christ as we take communion. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your sacrifice, for your example of how to live as a slave, but be free. Thank you for dying for us to ensure that both now and forever. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.